Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, it is upon their ancestral lands uh, that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Can there be a different kind of politics? Um, this Sydney Ideas conversation is part two of the 2022 federal election series presented with the Sydney Policy Lab. The lab is a multidisciplinary institute at the university and a non-partisan space uh, where people of all walks of life can meet and collectively develop plans uh, for the future. We have a wonderful panel uh, tonight, and it's my great privilege uh, to introduce them to you tonight. Um, Sally Situ is the newly elected member uh, for Reed, and this is something of a homecoming for Sally. Um, she used to be a media advisor at Sydney University. She was a champion of Mosaic Network, and she was a postdoctoral researcher at the University uh, Business School. Uh, Professor Tim Supomerson is a political theorist, uh, a director of cultural strategy here at the university, and the acting director of the Sydney Policy Lab. Uh, Carly Tink, again, is the newly elected member uh, for North Sydney. There's somebody in the back who wants to applaud you already. <laughs> Maybe a constituent on the north side of the harbour. Um, a successful businesswoman, um, Kylie has served as CEO of the McGrath Foundation and the Quality Cancer Charities. The reason why so many people dress up in pink um, during the Sydney test each summer is because of Kylie. Um, she was the instigator of that wonderful addition uh, to the sporting calendar. Yeah, that does really deserve a round of applause. And, and Professor Anne Twomey. Uh, she is the Professor of Constitutional Law and the Director of Constitutional Reform Unit at the Sydney Law School. Uh, I want to get this discussion underway with you, Carly. You, you surfed the, the teal wave all the way to Canberra. Um, what were the forces that, that generated that wave? Why, why did we see this, this sort of historic shift towards independence? I think it was a combination of things, to be honest, Nick. I think um, from my personal experience, there was a deep sense of frustration that, um, you know, the organisation that is our federal government, which was meant to be representing the people's ambitions and um, desires, didn't seem to be listening to the people anymore. There seemed to be a very strong disconnect, particularly in my electorate, between what the people of North Sydney thought they wanted to be standing for and the work they wanted to see done and the work that was being delivered by the federal government. I also think... Um, from a very personal perspective, there was this real sense of, well, if the system isn't working to drive the kind of change that we want to see, um, we have to accept responsibility that we've been part of creating that system. Yeah, I've voted for over 30 years, so I'm not um, uninvolved in how our political system has evolved. And so from my perspective, there was also a very strong realisation that if I'd helped create it, then I had to accept responsibility for recreating it and see if I could disrupt it. So that was, so I think it was frustration, but that sense of the potential to disrupt is probably hope 
um, was the other part of it. And I think that's what we're seeing now in a lot of the dialogue around what's happened is people feel hopeful in politics in Australia. So that's what compelled you to run, the idea that, that politics was broken mm. and actually you had to take personal responsibility yes. as somebody outside of politics to, to fix it. Yes, because I think, you know, the fundamental thing, the amazing thing about our democracy is that it is such a special thing and it's, it's an important thing for us all to participate in and own. And I think for me there was that real moment when I realised I couldn't just be part of an audience that was sitting on the side lamenting what our politicians were doing and the direction that politics was going in. And that's what I saw in North Sydney. I saw thousands and thousands of people stand up who say I, they'd never been involved in politics before. I often heard that. I've never done this before. I've never campaigned. I've never door knocked. But I'm doing it this time because I have to. If we don't do it now, who will? And I think Zoe Daniel coined that perfectly, you know, which was if not us, who? And if not now, when. So I do think it was a, a typical critical point, tipping point. Right. The last time I saw Zoe Daniel was uh, covering Donald Trump in Washington. We were both journalists well, covering, she saw it covering the Trump. Yeah, it's <laughs> extraordinary to see her come back and run for parliament and win. Um, Sally, um, it was an ambiguous result for Labour, right? I mean, you won. Um, what's that? Only the fourth time since the war that you've managed to ask the Liberal Prime Minister. But, but you did it with a pretty small primary vote. I, I, I wonder what, what the electorate was telling the Labor Party. Um, you, you say ambiguous. I say we won a majority in the House of Representatives, which means that we can um, put forward our reform agenda. Um, and I think there are certain lessons that we ought to learn from that campaign. And certainly one of the things was that there is a real mood for change in the electorate. And like Kylie said, um, many people want to see politics done differently. And I think that um, they, they showed that through how they voted, certainly. Um, but the reform agenda that we took to the electorate, um, they voted on that. Um, I, I got an um, 8.4% swing to me. Um, and I think that is a, a significant result um, given all the um, nuances in the, ele in the election. Um, so certainly one of the things that um, we have seen out of the results was that the swings were not uniform. They were different in different parts, and they were different in different parts of the, the state, the, the, the city. So lots of lessons to learn from that. Um, but um, we can see that no longer can we rely on these big, uniform, national swings. Um, it is very electorate based. Um, we saw that with the with the independence, and I'm not going to call you a teal because you, you you were not a teal. <laughs> I was right? not a teal. Yes. I was very pink. Yes, we were, we were yes. very pink in North Sydney. Um, and we also saw that with the different differing swings that. Um, Labor candidates got, as well as um, Liberal and National candidates got. So Bridget Archer, she bucked the trend there. Um, so I think what we can take out of this election was that the electorate wants to know their candidate in a way um, that was not typical of past elections. Um, so more so than ever, um, you have to put yourself out there um, more so than ever, you need to tell people who you are and what you stand for and the values that you have. Um, 
my my values and what I stand for is closely aligned with the Labor Party, and so that's why um, I'm in that party, and that's why I'm, you know, much of the reform agenda that they've put forward is something that I agree with. But um, I also put forward my story and who I am, and you know, where my family came from, and I think that the electorate was very receptive to that. Um, Tim, it was an extraordinary election in many ways. I mean, there is no longer a Liberal seat in Sydney with a view of the harbour. Um, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Um, You've got the best view of the harbour, haven't you? Even I've got a pretty good view of the harbour. You've got a great view of the harbour. Yeah. Um, we talked about phrases that we kind of thought, I can't believe this is coming out of my mouth, like green slide in Queensland. Um, we saw the fiefdom of Robert Menzies um, in Koyong in, um, in Melbourne go, go independent. Um, and so... We went big on the analysis, right? We kind of thought this is a seismic shift. This is a historic realignment. Um, you know, two months on, did we did we overhype it, or was it really that big a shift? We, we certainly saw a shift of some kind, but what it actually means is still yet unclear. I believe. Uh, I think the result reflected deep dissatisfaction with the Morrison Liberal government, including in its traditional heartlands. We have seen, though, a, a, a deepening of the decline of the major parties in the vote that they command. This is a continuation of a trend that's been happening for many decades now. Um, some have uh, been very quick to declare the election of uh, independence uh, as a reflection of a desire for a more progressive local politics. I'm not so sure that that's the, the lesson. I think it's more complex than that, and in many of the seats that were previously held by the Liberal Party, I think what you saw very clearly was a desire for a moderate liberalism, not a conservative far-right liberalism or anything moving towards that. And that's a different kind of politics to what I would regard as a progressive centre-left politics. But very nuanced. You obviously have elements of a progressive political agenda. If you think, for example, that action on climate change is progressive, um, but in many other respects, we're talking here about a desire to restore some standards in political life, and I don't regard that as necessarily ideological. So the meaning of this election, I think, uh, it still remains somewhat unclear, and we should be cautious not to jump to conclusions about there being a fundamental realignment to politics, when uh, I think the story is yet to be written, and uh, victors write their story. Uh, and it will be very interesting to see the next six months play out, how Labor proposes to put forward an agenda, because uh, it will only be uh, then that perhaps we can draw some lessons from, from the story. Uh, this is an evolving tale, but what we have seen is a, a, a critical moment. This might be the moment where we transition into a new era of politics and where we see a shift in our political culture. But what that shift actually is, I'm not quite sure yet. It's up for grabs. I think it is. It's for you guys to figure that out when you go to Canberra next week. Um, the paradox of what you were saying about the shift to, right being, shift to the right and the Liberal Party being punished was that a lot of those who lost their seats were, were moderates. Mm, and actually the end result has been an even more right-wing Liberal Party now led by Peter Dutton, who's even further to the right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's no question in my mind that the Liberal Party faces a fundamental question about the kind of party it wants to be. Does it want to be a more conservative party that engages in cultural politics? 
or does it wish to return to being a party that is connoted by its name, which is a liberal party, a party with liberal values? Early on in, in this term of the parliament, it's, it would appear to be the case that with Peter Dutton now as opposition leader, the party might be heading in a certain direction. And observing from afar, if you were in, in the Labor Party's shoes, uh, you know, long live the independents. Because I, I think if, if we do see independent MPs entrenched in traditional Labor seats, then you'll see the realignment taking place. And it will be a realignment that will take place over two or three terms of, of, of Australian politics. And did you see clarity in this election? Or did you see, I mean, we talked about the teal wave, uh, the green slide, all that kind of stuff. But was it more, you know, swirling cross currents that it's kind of still hard to figure out? Um, I, I think one of the more interesting things is that the the splits between how people vote are changing to be based on different things. So what we see now is that level of education is actually far more critical in terms of how people vote than is their income or the type of work they do. Um, and you've also got a split when it comes to social issues as opposed to economic issues. And so you see a, a shift where the, the coalition used to be the party of the people who were well off and the focus was on the economy. And you see that moving now towards people who are um, people with um, lower levels of education, people with higher levels of education are now more likely to, to vote on the Labor side. There's been a complete shift in that. Um, and you see the Liberal Party really pitching itself as the party of the workers, whereas the Labor Party is now pitching itself more towards a progressive side, um, uh, which is not necessarily in alignment with views of workers. So there's actually been, it's, it's like that kind of magnetic pole shift that people often talk about that's, that may or may not happen in the world. Well, there actually has been a political um, uh, shift, a magnetic pole shift as well. And education plays an important role in that. And that mirrors what's been happening in the States over the last Absolutely. 10 years yep. and what's been happening in Britain over the past 10 years as well. Carly, I mean, what were voters telling you? I mean, you know, you represent a place that is full of very prosperous people. Um, but is it now just full of people who are culturally liberal, that drive Teslas, that care about the environment? <laughs> And they're going to be hard <laughs> Don't to... make me come over there and spank you, Nick. Like, that's not... <laughs> and in fact, actually, I'm really glad you, you brought it up that way because actually I think what you've just hit on is what was at the heart of what was going on for North Sydney. North Sydney has not been seen as an electorate for over 20 years. Like, it's become... People have this stereotype of what North Sydney is, which is people that are well-off, that drive Teslas, that, you know, that are well-educated. I'm here to tell you North Sydney is a really vibrant and diverse community. You right. know, we have... 45% um, of the people who live in North Sydney weren't born in Australia. So one in two people who live there weren't born here. We have an extraordinary breadth of people. We have um, great social housing and affordable housing in the North Sydney area. And in fact, I think one of the most touching things that happened for me after the campaign was a young woman sent me a video from the streets of Kirribilli and most people would go, wow, Kirribilli is a beautiful, wealthy spot. The video she sent me was standing out in the front of the um, supermarket just saying, Kylie, I just want to say thank you. I've lived in social housing in Kirribilli for the last decade and it's the first time I've felt seen. 
And so if I had to put anything, what, what did I, what do I think happened in the last election? I think people stood up and said, we are jack of not being listened to. And you cannot run an agenda, which I think is what the Liberal government was doing. You cannot run an agenda which is completely disconnected from ourselves as a community and a society. And, and it's not what we want to see happen. So it's interesting. I have nothing but respect for my Labor colleagues and I'm really excited about the progressive reform that we're going to see come through. I do agree with Tim. I think what will be interesting for the Labor Party is if they're able to deliver on that reform or because if they can't, I think what we may see, if not the end of this term, that the next term, that their local residents go, well, hang on, are you listening to us? Because right. I think that's what happened to the Liberal Party. It was you, They stopped listening to the community that they were seeking to represent. Right. I want to, I want to talk about one of the big shifts in, in this election. Uh, it has produced a parliament that looks more like modern-day Australia. Mm. Um, we've got the most diverse parliament, I think, in, in Australian history. Um, Sally, I mean, you've become almost the face of that. When I when I plug in on Google, diversity in the Australian Parliament, it's, it's articles with your face that 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 pop pop up. Um, how significant do you think that's going to be in in changing the tenor of politics in Canberra? Um, it is, I think, one of the seismic shifts that's come out of this election. Um, certainly, I think you know in years to years to come as we look back on this federal election, the independents, the Greens, but also I think the um, number of diverse people who are in there. Um, But I think for me, um, having diversity in our parliament in and of itself is not enough. Um, It is about what you do when you are in parliament. Um, And I've I've said this a few times, but you know, I. I, I champion diversity. I think it's a really important thing that we have, not just in our parliament, but in our boardrooms, in our public service, in our defence force. Um, and I, I champion it not just to have a, you know, be the poster child of it all, um, but what is it that you want to change? Um, what is it about your family's story um, that you bring to the table? Um, what are the different experiences that you have that make you unique? Um, and I think the, the thing that I really recognised as I was campaigning was that so much of my family story is reflected in the family stories of those that I hope to represent or that I am representing. And that means that I'm much more deeply connected to the community than perhaps someone who doesn't have that family story. So uh, I think it really hit home for me when I was touring an automotive factory in Silverwater in my electorate and we went around the factory floor and we met many of the workers there. And I was just struck by how familiar that place was because my father had worked in an automotive um, factory for 35 years. And so the concerns that they have, the struggles that they have, the, the anxiety that they may have about their job potentially being offshored, like I understood that because that those were the concerns that my, my father had had. Um, mm. So it, it really struck me that I'm in a unique position there. Um, and then, of course, um, the, the stories that, that Kylie just shared, I, you know, I had very similar experiences of people coming up to me and telling me what it meant 
for them to have me running. And I, I thought it was going to be um, significant, but I didn't realise the impact that it would have on people. And um, there is an infamous radio debate that I participated in with my opponent um, where um, she may have mistaken me for another person or she's um, just um, misled people. Um, but after that radio interview, um, you know, prior to that, there had been people in the electorate who kind of had said, oh, I'd seen you on posters and flyers and things like that. After that radio program, there were so many people that came up to me and said, this has happened to me so many mm. times. There were so many times <clears throat> I've been mistaken for the other Asian person in the office. And um, I think it was <coughs> after that radio program that I really recognised that this was significant for people out there in the community in ways that I hadn't imagined. Um, and I just wanted to pick up on one point that um, Anne spoke about, and that was the idea that the Labor Party was no longer seen as the, the party of the workers. And um, I think that certainly in this election, um, maybe that was something that you could have said previously, but in this election, when we're talking about secure work, when the Prime Minister was out there talking about an increase in minimum wage and how he was going to champion that, despite, despite you know, the, the, the media really going at him, um, I think that it really demonstrated that this is the party of workers, that we are going to stand up for them and that we are saying inflation is at 5.5% and you haven't seen a pay increase in however long we are there going into bat for you. So I, I, I understand the trends and I understand that the research is showing that um, perhaps workers don't feel that Labor is on their side, but I hope that out of this federal election that they do see, um, one, the benefits of unions, given how much work they did during the pandemic to win some of those workers' rights, but two, that you have a prime minister, a cabinet and a government that is willing to go into bat for workers. Mm. Um, Tim, going back to diversity, um, I mean, and, and if I can get you to put on your, your former cap of the Race Discrimination Commissioner, um, how, how big a game changer do you think this is going to be, that, that this is the most diverse parliament in, in the nation's history? Time will tell. I mean, if, if we're talking about the next election and we don't see many of these parliamentarians return, then the impact of this change may be quite short-lived. But if they do remain in parliament, this could well be the, the longest-lasting effect that this election has on the Australian political culture. Uh, this election was a reset in many respects, but this may represent the most significant reset we get. Uh, I was struck by how in the immediate analysis of the election result, we obviously had lots of commentary about the, the, the teal independence and the fact that uh, we saw here a, a group of female parliamentarians making such an enormous impact. Uh, for me, watching on, it was the essential multiplication of diversity that we saw of the cultural and ethnic kind that I felt was um, perhaps more significant in, in terms of the composition of the parliament. Because uh, Australia's cultural diversity simply hasn't been represented mm. in the Parliament, it's still not represented anywhere near proportionate terms when we're talking about all of our major institutions, whether it's our major companies, whether it's 
the public service, our universities, uh, the media, civil society, and so on. Uh, and to put it into perspective, just think of what's happening in the UK at the moment, where the British Conservative Party is having a contest for its leadership and subsequently for the Prime Ministership of the United Kingdom. And there have been multiple candidates who've put themselves forward who come from a minority uh, uh, ethnic background. Um, we just wouldn't dream of seeing anything like that in Australian politics, mm. at least for some time. Mm. Uh, and that is a product of a conscious decision that the British Conservative Party made to court uh, and to go out and recruit more diverse candidates um, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, we're reaping the harvest of um, David Cameron's reforms. He's he very proactive in, in making sure that um, there was diversity in the, in the Conservative Party. Uh, and it's extraordinary to watch. You're right. Um, you've spoken about a generational shift as well. Within, um, uh, I read something you wrote about um, the older generation of, of new immigrants into Australia was kind of grateful. Um, their kids are insistent. They're not just grateful to be here. They want to change this place. Um, yeah, there's there's an element of that. Um, again, it's, it's it's very hard to to read this definitively, but uh, there, there, it once would have been assumed that uh, being invited to the party, as it were, is uh, the most you could be, uh, the most you could expect, that you should just be grateful that you have a, um, a, an invite to, to the party. Uh, but I, I think these days, the expectations of the children of migrants are very <clears throat> different to the expectations of those who came here as migrants. Uh, and, and here we're seeing uh, the influence perhaps of some of the politics that's been conducted in the US where you, you have seen a great assertion of identity and a, and, and a desire for equality, of a, uh, and I'm talking here about racial equality. Uh, think of the debates that have been unleashed by Black Lives Matter in, in the US and, in, uh, and also in the UK. Um, this is percolating into Australian political culture too. If we're talking about the children of migrants in Australia today who come from uh, non-European or non-white backgrounds, uh, I think there's a greater assertiveness, a greater consciousness about uh, racial inequality and a desire to see our institutions be more reflective and representative. And this is different to what the situation would have been 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, where, uh, where perhaps expectations were lower and where perhaps there was greater acceptance of the status quo. Uh, that leads us on very neatly, I think, to, to Uluru and the statement from the heart. When, when Anthony Albanese delivered his victory speech, he began with an acknowledgement of country and he immediately committed the Labour government to, to getting Uluru done. Um, Anne, how, how does that happen? What's the path? Uh, well, that's a good question because this is a promise that's been made numerous times before. So if you actually want to go back, it was actually John Howard in the 2007 campaign that promised a referendum on Indigenous recognition. That was then matched by Kevin Rudd. Um, and we went through the whole of the Rudd government with, without that. But then we got the Gillard government and there was a promise because of independence um, in that agreement um, with the independence um, to go ahead. And, and to be fair to Gillard, she did create um, a body to, you know, look at the type of recognition that we'd have and all those sorts of things. 
Um, but for various reasons, that fell in a heap as well. Um, and, you know, finally we've come back with, a, with another commitment. This time, um, because this has been carrying on for so long and people are going to lose the impetus and the energy to do it if it keeps dragging on, I think this time the government is very serious about um, going to a referendum. Um, most recently they've actually said that they, they want to hold it in May next year. Um, some people think that's too rushed. Um, I think it will depend very much on um, what they put out there and I think they need to put something out there soon, which gives us the drafting of the proposed words so that people can know what it is um, and also some further indication of how it would actually function in practice. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily having a, a, a bill and the full detail of it, but enough for people to be able to know confidently what it is that they're voting for. Um, so in terms of the next steps, that, that's going to be crucial because one of the things that people like me find is that it's very hard to go out there and explain this or to refute the um, misinformation about it, unless you can point to something on a piece of paper and say, no, this is the proposal. But while we're, we're missing the words, while we don't have any kind of authoritative version of the detail of it, I mean, I can, I can tell you what in my mind it ought to be, and, um, but, but that has no standing. We, we need something from the government to tell us, right, it is precisely these words that are going in there, you know, this is what we're going to leave to Parliament to decide as a democratic process. Um, obviously, we can't preempt what a Parliament will do in the future, but we can give some intention as to what this Parliament will do. And that could be, for example, um, passing a bill that sets out, you know, guidelines and principles and intention, um, but then leaving further consultation to um, um, be involved in setting up that process of a of a physical version of the voice. So there's still a lot of work to be done and it is an ambitious target. But on the other hand, at some point you've got to have ambition and you've actually got to get things done because otherwise if it's, you know, it, this has been dragging on since 2007 and that's a long time to maintain the sort of enthusiasm and the desire to achieve things. So um, we'll see. Sally, can you throw any light on the kind of mechanics of it and the timetable yeah, of it? Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Just announce it now. Um, so I think um, one of the things that really struck me about this discussion was how long it has been since we have had an opportunity to talk about who we are as a country. So I think this is that opportunity. Um, and I, I um, really appreciate um, Professor Toomey's um, expertise in this space about how how we do that, um, but I think if you if you zoom out and think about what it is that this is trying to achieve, this is um, trying to say to our First Nations people that you were the original and traditional custodians of this land, and we do it in a way that isn't just you know a glib one-liner, we embed you in our constitution. That is how important we think you are and the contribution that you've made to this country. Um, but also I think it's an acknowledgement of um, recent history as well, what, what has occurred um, to our First Nations people more recently and, and the challenges that have come from that. 
So it is on the one hand um, a real opportunity for us um, and I think that I understand the need to have the writing down and, and to have something to talk to, um, but I hope that we don't get lost in that because um, you know, the symbolic power of what we're trying to do and we're trying to achieve, I think, is um, a real turning point for the country um, and a real acknowledgement of what has occurred, um, but a way forward for us to be able to be um, and, and, you know, if you read the statement, um, the Prime Minister called it an act of grace um, in his election night speech. And I think that's what it is. It's a real invitation for us to go on this journey with our First Nations people. And they do it in a, a gracious and, and patient way. They've, they've been waiting for a really long time. Um, so I, I recognise that we need to get into the details, but I hope that we don't get lost in the details. Right, right. Um, Tim, I mean, the, the history of referendums in Australia isn't good. I think, what is it, eight out of 44, 44, 44 have, yeah. have got up. Um, what, are, what, are you, what are your thoughts on, on, on getting oh, Uluru over the line? I, th I think there's enormous goodwill for, uh, for, for steps towards constitutional recognition and there's strong majority support for... Um, for for steps towards uh, that and, and and for historical reconciliation here with first peoples um, the detail is going to be uh, of course the key here and uh, we know that there's been <coughs> a lot of debate about whether this uh, whether having a voice uh, enshrined in the constitution would uh, represent a third chamber of parliament uh, that's not the um, the 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 characterization I think uh, most learned people would would offer of uh, of the voice proposal, but that does loom as a potential danger if there is to be a referendum contest that people might um, be be running a line such as that to to scare uh, people off the proposition. Uh, so much does depend on getting the sequencing right and ensuring that there's uh, a proper campaign to inform and educate the Australian public about why this matters and, mm. and about why it um, doesn't uh, fundamentally alter the nature of our democracy, but rather enhances it in a certain way. Mm. Um, and there's a strong case for having an advisory body uh, with respect to First Peoples, because when you look at the history of the Australian Parliament and when you look, for example, at the occasions when the Racial Discrimination Act has been suspended, it's uh, invariably in relation to Indigenous issues. Uh, and we're talking here about how parliaments have made laws which have a disproportionate or targeted effect at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, that alone, I think, uh, gives a strong weight to uh, reason cause for having a voice to parliament. Uh, we're talking here about an advisory body. You know, if there are laws that are to be passed by the parliament which will affect First Peoples, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable for First Peoples to be able to advise the parliament uh, through, uh, through a mechanism such as, uh, such as the sort being proposed. Um, Kylie, um, I mean, this really does feel like a defining moment. I mean, the question that we asked at the beginning was, can you reset politics in Australia? And I mean, 
the, the result of a, a, con a referendum on, on Uluru would probably be the thing that answers that question. Mm. Look, I, I actually, this may sound dramatic, but I, I do fundamentally believe that as a generation, it is on us as Australians to decide what our country is going to look like into the future. And so I feel incredibly optimistic that this is an opportunity, and I use the phrase mature. This is an opportunity for modern day Australia to mature, to become everything that we can possibly be. You know, and I grew up out in northwest New South Wales. I was very fortunate to have um, strong positive experiences with First Nations culture growing up. And I think what is fundamentally important in this is that this, this is moving our nation beyond any thought of them and us, whether it is how you came to the country, whether it was that you were here first, or it, this is the moment for us to stand up and go, this is who we want to be into the future. And um, so actually I feel a bit as has been expressed here, we just need to get this done. And, you know, from my point of view, maybe I'm too simple, but I just want to go to the Australian people and say, do you want a, the First Nations people recognised in the Constitution? So can I ask that this room here, do you agree that First Nations people should be recognised in our Constitution? Hands up. Okay, referendum passed. Let's get on with it. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, because to me, I think when you look at some, and again, it might just be me being simple, the non-politician, but I think a number of reasons that the referenda have failed in the past is because they've asked the wrong question. Sure. It's not been the right question. The question here is who do we want to be as a nation going yeah. forward and what role does our recognition of First Nations play in it? Send that to the referendum and it'll get through and then leave it up to the politicians and the bureaucrats and First Nations people to work out what it looks like. The public. You know, and I think that's what we need to trust. Let... Let politics be about the people. Yeah, correct. Um, we're going to give you the chance to ask a few questions soon. Uh, we've got a couple of microphones here. And I'm going to bring in Clicko, actually, um, on my iPad here, um, because it, it goes on to the subject I really want to talk about next, which is, uh, do you think we will get a good federal integrity commission? <laughs> That's from John. Thanks, John. Um, Anne. Okay. Uh, well, I'm actually quite optimistic about this. Um, uh, so I've been a little bit involved in both versions. Um, so I was consulted on the previous version of the coalition put forward. Um, it was a pretty terrible bill, to, to be honest. Um, uh, in fact, uh, I, I, in my submission on it, I pointed out that it was so long and complex that the definition section of this bill was actually longer than the constitution when it was first enacted, right? <laughs> and if you can't write your legislation in such a way um, uh, that you can deal with integrity without having to write something where the definitions alone are longer than the constitution, then you've got a real problem. Okay, so that, that was a shocker of a bill. Um, uh, I haven't obviously seen a new bill yet from the, from the um, new Labor government, but again, I have been consulted um, and the consultations have been much more optimistic. Um, so they have taken on board a lot of the suggestions to ensure that this is a properly independent body, uh, that um, members of the public are able to um, raise issues, that the body itself can initiate 
um, uh, 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 investigations of its own, uh, that it has the facility to do public hearings if it decides that they're necessary, as well as being able to do things in private, that it has the full powers of a royal commission, and that it does deal with politicians and ministerial advisers in a way that the previous bill was completely inadequate. Um, now, having said that, there are still a number of areas where there are um, uh, matters that still need to be you know, resolved. Um, so there are still some issues about independent funding of it, for example, oversight of it. And I know Kylie has um, strong views on this as well. Um, and of course, once we see a bill, we may find all sorts of holes in it. But um, at least for the present, um, the signs are good that we may get um, something that's actually quite effective. Um, Kylie, one of the things that you uh, are championing is a code of conduct mm. for MPs. What, what, what's that going to look like? What are, what are they going to be punished for? I don't think a good code of conduct starts from the point of punishment. I think a good code of conduct actually starts from the point of what are we aspiring to do here and how are we aspiring to behave. Um, and in fact, it, just being really honest, my, I blew my mind when I got to Parliament and when I was running to learn that there was no standard code of conduct for parliamentarians. Yeah, it seems quite crazy, yeah. you know, and this whole idea that no, a, a parliamentarian's behaviour is only to be judged once every three years when they come back up for election. Now, I'm, again, I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that I'm sure there's nobody sitting in this room at the moment or watching tonight that hasn't worked in an environment where pretty much within the first week you're asked to sign the code of conduct so you know what the rules are in terms of the ground that you're you're playing in. So I think it's I think it's fundamental, you know, and I, I um, echo what Professor Toomey has said and I've got no doubt we'll hear it from Sally, I think the early um, indications from the Labor government is they are, they are genuine in their desire here to bring in, I keep on trying to call it the Integrity Commission, but they keep calling it the Anti-Corruption Commission, but that's just, you know, positive, negative. Um, an anti-corruption commission that will have teeth, that will be independent. I guess my the great opportunity in being an independent is that I continue to advocate for them to go that one step further. And so, in fact, I don't mind the, the piece that Professor Toomey... I am desperately trying to convince the Labor government to be completely brave and let an integrity commission actually be overseen by a joint parliamentary committee that does not have a dominance on the government side. Because right. I actually think if you create a body like that, where the stakes are equal in terms of the people that are overlooking it, we won't have situations like we had last time where, you know, the referral of Christian Porter to the Privileges Committee was simply voted down by well, the government. It's interesting you say that because a number of people have come to me after the election and actually said, I wish the independents had held the balance of power. They, they wanted you to have more oversight. They wanted you to have more influence in Canberra. It's, in, it's so fascinating because obviously a number of people have had that conversation with me is, you know, do you feel your impact has been dampened by not holding the balance of power? And my response to that has been the same since before the election to it is today. No parliamentarian should have to hold the balance of power to have the opportunity to influence how politics is done in Canberra. And, you know, I think um, from my perspective, I feel very comfortable and confident that the people of North Sydney gave me a job to make sure that their voice was heard in Canberra and that somebody turned up every day 
in the federal electorate to do the things that needed to be done for them from a federal perspective. Now, just because I don't hold the balance of power certainly doesn't mean that I'm not doing that. And, you know, it's actually been, I think, one of the most rewarding things for me in this first period has been the level of engagement that I have had with the government. You know, there, there have been open conversations about what form the Anti-Corruption Commission will take, open conversations about the climate bills, open conversations about standing orders and, and parliamentary speaking rosters. So I have a lot of hope. I really do have a lot of hope. And I think the early indications from the Prime Minister was that he wanted to see politics done differently. And um, I think what's going to be fascinating for us to watch is when you go in with that ambition, how long can you hold on to that before potentially old habits start to kick in. And we did see this right. recently. I don't mind sharing. One of the things we asked as a crossbench was whether um, the standing orders could potentially be changed so that you didn't need an absolute majority, that actually if you had a simple majority around a motion in the House on a day, you could get it passed. And that was something we saw the Labor Party in opposition voice on a number of occasions vociferously that that's how it should be, that's how it should be. Um, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, when we put it forward as a crossbench suggestion coming into this parliament, unfortunately, Tony Burke said no, they wouldn't be introducing right. that. And actually, it's a constitutional <laughs> issue on your side there, can I just point out? Well, I yeah. wrote a whole article about why the, that rule is probably unconstitutional. So, but I th thought it was interesting. Tony did actually say, you know, and the conversation we had was that there was a recognition that. It is easier to criticise a system when you're in opposition than when you're sitting in it and then you've got to make that decision about whether you're brave enough to actually undo it. Yeah, right. I'm, I want to bring in the audience. Sir, you've got the microphone up there. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming and talking with us today. I know that I say on behalf of a lot of people here, no, we appreciate you talking about this. I know that um, it's easy to talk about the hope that there could be a change in politics in the future, but... Uh, I think that there's also a need to talk about maybe potential concerns about changes in politics in the future, especially with uh, what is happening in America at the moment. Um, the, latest the latest census in Australia has showed that uh, baby boomers have now not got a majority when it comes to the voting population. There's now a parity with millennials. And millennials are famous for having a very low faith in democracy um, and having much more radical politics uh, on both sides of the aisle. Um, in what way could a future change in politics help address some of the concerns that millennials and younger generations might have when it comes to uh, politics and how we function as a, uh, a country as well? It's a great question. I mean, one of the, one of the things that the polling shows is, is how younger people really haven't got the kind of commitment to democracy that perhaps the older generation has got. Democracy does seem to be in peril. Tim? Yeah, a, a reset of politics does not represent a change in politics. A reset in politics gives you the opportunity to enact change. And I would say that the future of democracy does require our attention to generational equity. And, and, and we are seeing this play out in so many ways in our society right now. Just, you know, we're all here in Sydney. Just look at the housing market. That, that's a prime example of intergenerational inequity. If we don't get these issues right, if we don't start fixing um, the, the system and ensuring that all members of our society do have a stake and can get ahead, uh, then we should not be surprised if the legitimacy of our institutions suffer. Um, it's no surprise to me to find that uh, over time, uh, trust 
in institutions has declined and that's been correlated with an increase in material or economic inequality. Um, we need to think about these issues not just in terms of economic justice, this is about the legitimacy of our democratic society. And if you think of it that way, the question becomes all the more urgent, I think. Um, sir, let's get a question from you. Y yes, uh, a comment and then a question. Um, I think too much is made of the somewhat lower primary vote for Labor in the election. And it needs to be recognised that there was tactical versus sure. strategic voting. And in Kylie's electorate, it was very clear to me that the, um, we needed to get the Liberals out and the Greens and the Labor wasn't going to get up. So mm. it was for the Teals. Um, my question is, I used to feel very strongly about a republic, seeing what's going on in the US and having a system which I believe works now. What did the panel think of a move to becoming a republic? Um. Okay. Uh, so the first observation is that um, uh, the sort of republic we would have would have no relationship whatsoever with the United States. So I think we shouldn't let people get distracted by what happens in the US, which has a presidential system of government. There's no proposal that a republic here would have that same sort of system. We would stick with our um, system of responsible government that we already have. So you wouldn't have a president who has the kinds of power that the President of the United States has. So that in itself shouldn't be a worry in relation to this. Um, uh, you know, many people, and indeed, um, surprisingly, the, um, the monarchists, um, argue that we already effectively have a republic because the, the Queen doesn't actually really have any significant powers in, in relation to Australia. She gets to appoint the Governor-General on the advice of ministers and she gets to potentially remove the Governor-General on the advice of ministers. So changing that part of the system is not itself particularly dangerous or problematic. Um, but there are then issues about, well, how do you choose the person who then fills in that role or combination of the Governor-General and the Queen? And that does still remain controversial because the Australian people tend to take the view that, hey, if we're going to have a president, I want to be able to vote for that person. And that involves some kind of election. But there's this conflict that's going on there internally for the Australian people because at the same time they're saying, but I don't want a politician. Okay? I want the sort of people that we have already as our Governor General or as our State Governors. I want the Marie Bashirs and the Quentin Bryces and the whatever. But the thing is, they're not going to run in a direct election. So we've got this kind of dilemma going on here that the Australian people want simultaneously two conflicting things. They want to elect people, but they don't actually want an election and a politician chosen. And so that's left us in a bit of a dilemma as to how we resolve those conflicting issues. Um, and, you know, we're still stuck in that dilemma, um, but it is something we're going to have to face relatively soon because when the Queen does die and there is a change um, and we get a new King of Australia and nobody in Australia gets a say about that, then it will raise the issue again and we will need to address it. Um, current government has um, stated that this is a sort of a second term issue for them. Um, my suggestion to them, for what it's worth, 
um, <laughs> is that, well, maybe you need to start thinking about it now in terms of saying, well, if we do have some kind of system that you want to propose for choosing the, the head of state in a republic, why not set that system in place and use it to choose the next governor general? Because you could do that with the Australian Prime Minister saying, okay, I will advise the Queen to appoint whoever gets chosen by this particular system, and you could put it in place, and then you could see how it worked, and then once you had something that working that the people could see, actually, it's not a screaming disaster, it's all okay, then you're more likely to find it acceptable when you move to a republic later on with a referendum. How so great is that thinking? <laughs> Just a, just a little suggestion. <laughs> Take that to Politics done differently. That's, that's, that's <laughs> great that advice. Um, <laughs> we've only got a few minutes left. Um, and I want to get a question from Slido again. Harry's asked a good one. With the shift away from the two major parties this election, and I take your point, sir, um, but there was a shift away. Oh, it's just gone away. Um, do you think eventually we will have a political landscape more like New Zealand, with a government made up of multiple parties? Carly. I hope so. Um, and I say that because, with respect, I do actually think the two-party system had become gridlocked in mm. Australia. Right. And even though I take the point that there was tactical voting, I think that what we know in every other part of our society is that you get the best outcomes when you enable multiple voices to be heard and you create an environment where people can then work together to come to the best possible outcome. I think... Um, it's actually John Adams wrote, who was one of the fathers of the American Constitution, one of the points that he actually wrote in his diary was that he lamented that if the American democracy ever, ever got to the point where there were only two primary parties, democracy would die. And that was from the author of the American Constitution. So I actually think a variety of opinion is really important and I think it makes it a healthy environment. And I have said I think having an independent sit you know, as a ministerial role, to working collaboratively with other um, parties is would be a really great outcome for our so country. Are you, are you going to defend the duopoly or do you <laughs> agree that more voices, more parties? Sure, more voices, more parties. Um, but I think, you know, for me, it comes down to what are your values, what do you stand for? And that is why I'm part of the Labor Party. Um, it, it is um, not about getting into politics in and of itself for the, the, the joys and the spoils of it. Um, so I think that if we go back to that, if you go back to the reason that you're standing, um, the policies that you want to implement, um, where that falls, so if, you, if that independent, Greens, Labor, Liberal, Nationals and everything in between, um, then fine. But um, I think you really need to think about why you're standing what you're taking to the electorate. Um, and it's not about necessarily just getting into politics. Great. Um, rapid fire. We've only got a few minutes left. Sir, at the back. On Sunday, uh, Scott Morrison addressed his Pentecostal church and uh, suggested that they shouldn't trust government. So I'm, I'm asking the panel whether the results of the election we just had actually show that there is a willingness on the people of Australia to trust government a bit more. Carly? <laughs> given the, given the, uh, the problems we have to address. 
Look, I think um, the results of the last election should give us hope that people are not disengaged with our democracy in this country. And it kind of comes over to the first question that was asked about engagement um, and the change in the generations. If we go right back to my very first answer, we can only be, as a nation, how we're prepared to turn up as individuals. There is nobody that's going to tell us the right way to do this or the wrong way to do this. The invitation, you know, I, I was motivated to run because of young people and the fact there was such a disengagement and, and nobody talking or speaking for them. So, I, yes, I do think people, Australians still fundamentally believe in our democracy. We don't, we're not militant, we're not burning buildings. We, we want to believe in the capacity of our democracy. But I'm going to flip that back and say the realisation of that is not the responsibility yeah. of the government, it's the responsibility of every person sitting in this room and every person watching at home. Um, I think this is going to have to be the final question. Yes. Uh, hi. Um, uh, you're a constituent... Well, sorry. I'm a constituent of yours, rather, uh, Kylie, uh, and we met before I met you at uh, uh, Meet the Candidate uh, event, and afterwards I shared that my, I'd missed a call from my landlord who was calling to raise my rent during that event. Um, and I just wanted to um, ask... What recourse do you think I should have against the swath of politicians who, in the uh, register of interests, clearly have a declared uh, conflict of interest and have profited from their failure uh, to represent me? Ah. With the notable exception, actually, of your predecessor, Trent Zimmerman, who I didn't vote for. <laughs> All right. um, it's lovely to meet you and thank you for the question. I think that we have a need to actually have, and this may not directly answer it, but we need some fundamental reform in tax here in Australia. And actually I think the whole negative gearing issue is one of the things we need to look at in terms of addressing that intergenerational wealth. Um, I don't disagree with you. I think where a system has been created and sustained and it's no longer serving the purposes of our widest population, it needs to be deconstructed. So I'm all for, you know, grandfathering something to make sure people aren't punished for decisions they may have made because of the rules that existed. But going forward, I think it's enough to be able to negative gear maybe one extra property. I don't think we need to be negative gearing the fifth or sixth negative property that you own. Just to wrap this up, I would love to get a kind of one idea from each of you about how to improve the quality of Australian politics. Um, Tim, do you want to go first? Oh, David Cameron introduced an A-list to ensure that there, were, there was a better calibre of candidates who ran for parliamentary seats on behalf of the Conservative Party. We're now reaping the benefits of... Well, in, in the UK, they're now reaping the benefits of that A-list. We've seen the Tory party of all of the political parties displaying a modern face. I never thought you would ever hear those words being uttered, but here we are. If parties are serious about getting better candidates in and enriching and enlivening our democracy, uh, they should consider innovating in that kind of way and finding ways to take uh, good citizens into parliament. I mean, the current system works to some degree. We're seeing some very talented people enter parliament right now, but more talented people can enter parliament without having to go through arcane and highly counterproductive routes through political parties. Great stuff. Anne, a quick one. Okay. Clean up political donations. Yep. Get rid of pork barrelling. Yeah. Um, clean up the way political appointments are made to public service and the like. 
Um, and also clean up in relation to um, the government's um, political advertising as well and use of advertising by governments. If you can clean all that up, all right. it'll be good. Extremely manifesto, has got a lot of support in the room. Um, Sally. What Anne said. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also I think there is um, a need to genuinely enfranchise people. So they, you know, we've got compulsory voting, they turn up, but do they know how to vote? Do they know the um, democratic system? And especially for new migrants, when they come here, are they well-versed in our democracy? And I think there is a huge piece that we could be doing there. Brilliant. Carly? Oh, what Sally said, what Anne said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, my word's simple, courage. I think we need more courage in Australian politics. And I think that comes from the government that sits. I think it comes from the people who support the system. And I think if we were more courageous and had more belief and were prepared to actually step in and be everything we can be as a nation, holy, I mean, there is so much potential for Australia and we've just got to own it. Um, so for me, it's courage. Be courageous. Fantastic. Um, what about electoral terms four years? Yeah. We'd love to see it. Yeah, yeah. I'd agree with that. Short-termism is baked into everything and you have a permanent campaign with three-year terms, don't you? Um, I want to tell you about an event that's going to be taking place in this auditorium um, tomorrow night. Um, it's featuring the leading environmental scientist, uh, Professor Emma Johnson, and she's going to be talking about what's in store for our environment and our well-being, which seems very timely, um, especially given what's happening in my homeland right now. London is burning. It's extraordinary to watch. Um, I want to thank you all for coming, um, and I want to particularly thank our panel. It's been great. Uh, you've given us so much to think about. Tim Sipovison, Sally Sito, Kylie Tink, and Trudy. Thank you very much, and good night. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources, or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Oh.